This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello. We're here at the Miami Book Fair uh, for a live episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast with the writer T.C. Boyle. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And on our podcast, we look at current events through the lens of literature. We believe that every issue that shows up in our Twitter feeds or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in novels, poems, stories, plays, etc. If you want to find our show, including a recording of this interview, look for us at lithub.com or type fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your podcast app. And you are going to want to do that because today we're on the road talking with T.C. Boyle about drugs. It's fitting, right? <laughs> Literary festivals, road trips, other trips. Yeah. And I assume you'll be drawing a lot from your personal experience, Whitney. No comment. Fair enough. Well, we're delighted to have T.C. Boyle on the podcast. He's the author of 16 novels and more than 100 short stories, including his most recent novel, Outside Looking In. He won the Penn Faulkner Award in 88 for his third novel, World's End, and the Prix Manicis Étrangère in France for the oh, Tortilla Oh, my French curtain. accent's so much better Well, than you that. do it. <laughs> Prix Manicis Étrangère. I speak Spanish. <laughs> um, in France for the Tortilla Curtain in 1995. In 2014, he won the Ray Award for the short story and the Robert Kirsch Award for Lifetime Achievement from the Los Angeles Times. He's a distinguished professor of English... Uh, at the University of, oh, sorry, a distinguished professor of English emeritus at the University of Southern California. TC, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. And uh, uh, speaking of drugs, I find that I'm on stage with two fellow Hawkeyes, although, of course, in Iowa they pronounce that Hawkeyes. <laughs> and this uh, is the part where you guys <laughs> applaud for him. <laughs> Yeah, we, we can share our experiences in Iowa City. I was there uh, shortly after the hippie era, but it was still, you know, it had its last vestiges in Iowa City when I got there. I had gone there specifically to escape the New York scene, which was heavily um, drug-saturated for me. <laughs> Uh, and I stepped right into a similar scene in Iowa City. Well, some of that shows up in Dennis Johnson's book, <laughs> yes. uh, Jesus' Son. Yes, 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 yes. Dennis was in my class there, and I knew him a bit. He was a very uh, private person, but I knew at least one of the characters in Jesus' Son. Really? Which one? Um, um, Walter. Walter. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Who is dead, as we all are. I don't yeah. know if you're aware of it. <laughs> yeah. In your new novel, Outside Looking In, it's about LSD. I want to begin by talking a little bit about the history of psychedelics in the country as well as in Iowa City, if necessary. Uh, your novel focuses on two early researchers into LSD, mm. Albert Hoffman, who first synthesized the substance at Sandoz Laboratories in Switzerland, and then Timothy Leary, a clinical psychologist who began conducting experiments of LSD under the Harvard Psilocybin Project. I know who these guys are, but I don't know if everybody does. Could you sort of talk to our listeners about mm. them? Sure, that's exactly why I wrote the book. So, uh, 
there have been a lot, there's been a lot of interest in LSD now that it's come out of the closet where the uh, hippies put it for 40 years. Um, uh, Michael Pollan, for instance, who's yeah. written the wonderful How to Change Your Mind, uh, is telling us that this is a drug that disconnects your editing brain. It's called an entheogen. Can you see God? It enables you to see God. That is, it cuts off uh, anything but just pure sense impressions rushing in. So I wrote a book in order to try to find that out. And it's set in Harvard, primarily, but then it goes to Millbrook, New York, in the early period of 60 through 63, uh, prior to the period I wrote about in Drop City, which is about the hippies. We all know about the hippies and how they got there, but... I love that book. It's a great book. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. My mom likes it, too. Well, uh, my mom uh, might not like it. <laughs> I'll come and read it aloud to her. I'm cheap, too. Okay, only only, right. only 10000 an hour. All right. Is that come okay? Kansas City. All right. I'll do it. Set it up. I'll do it. So anyway, uh, I'd written about the hippie efflorescence. I just wanted to step back before my time and find out where we're coming from. So the drug was used only clinically at that point by psychiatrists. And I'm writing about Timothy Leary, who was a professor at Harvard at the time and had his first trip on Mexico, mescaline in Mexico and decided that... Uh, this was the way to go. He was an apostle of this drug. So I'm positing uh, a student. I'm inventing a student of his, Fitzhugh Loney, who is in the graduate's program in psychiatry at uh, Harvard. And I love this because when I went to grad school, I had Frederick P.W. McDowell as my PhD mentor at Iowa. I don't know if he was probably gone by the time you got there. Anyway, he took me under his wing, and what he wanted me to do was learn about 19th century British literature and love it. That was it. But then I thought about what did Leary want his students to do? Well, he wanted them to study uh, psychology, of course, but he also insisted that they take this little drug he'd discovered. It and get was, totally high. Yes, 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 <laughs> but he, he believed in it. And to be his student, you had to get high. Now, I'd already been high. I'd already been there, I'd done that. I wanted to go to grad school and, and be straight and uh, find out what I want to do in life, which is what I'm doing now, writing books. So for those in our audience who might not know um, LSD, there's a lot of psychedelics out there, but how is LSD different? And why were you drawn to writing about that versus other substances? Well, let's put it this way. Um, we all know about Jimi Hendrix and his jacket, right? Uh, you know, with the eye bleeding eyeballs on it and, uh, and his guitar playing. But uh, we don't really know how the 60s would have gone if there wasn't LSD. Uh, <laughs> that is for sure. I think we would have done some of the same things anyway, especially with the harder drugs. But I think those colors and that flamboyance and that wildness, I think it's all coming out of the early researchers like Leary and, of course, on the West Coast, Ken Kesey as well. So I really, it's important, and, and it's a crucial part of this book, that the students are all doing this drug with him. And it's so insane to imagine that that was like uh, a totally sanctioned experimental situation. Yes, at you first, know? my dear fellow, but of course, uh, both um, Alpert and Leary were kicked out of Harvard for uh, precisely this. Yeah. So Leary gets fired, though, in 1963. And then after that, as you alluded to, like people stop researching this. It's not a cool thing to do anymore until recently. 
And there was a Times article that we looked up from 2016 saying that NYU and Johns Hopkins and Imperial College in London are starting to look into the ways that LSD and other psychedelic drugs can help people with stuff like smoking or you know, depression and headaches and stuff mm. like that. You know? why, why do you think LSD is coming back into the mainstream now? Maybe because it works. Uh, however, my experience of it, which is uh, rather extensive, uh, <laughs> was pretty much negative eventually. It started out great every trip and then it became negative because ah, my mind is very active. I burn with a high candle. And everybody else at the party was already unconscious, and that's when the snakes were climbing out of my stomach, you know. So I preferred drugs that brought me down. So I haven't done LSD since those peri that period. And I don't want to do it, even though, by the way, I, was, uh, I did a, a thing with Michael Pollan recently where we talked about this. He's a newbie. He's just done it now. Right. I don't want that loss of control anymore. Uh, I'm afraid because the thing that means most to me is the creative process, which is a trip in itself, obviously. Every day I'm creating something, I don't even know what it is, and I have to follow it. And I not, everybody here has written something. You have to get into a kind of dream state. Some days you get there, some days you don't. And I don't want to tinker with that. So. You mentioned Michael Pollan, and, and you sat down with him and Islet Wellman recently and talked mm -hmm. about only having and having bad trips on LSD. And you know, when I think about, even for example, that first conversation where in in the book Fitz goes into Leary's office, and um, what you're describing is sort of your desire to go to Iowa City and be quote unquote a straight and figure out what you want to do with your life. I can kind of see that in Fitz and in his initial anxiety. Considering that you had these bad trips, how did you think about writing about hallucinogens in a nuanced way when you had had this negative experience? Oh, shucks. I just make it up. <laughs> it's fiction. Uh, the joy of it is to see where it's going to go. So I don't write much that's autobiographical. I'm not comfortable with that. I like to invent things and make things up. But Fitz is a little bit like me. Uh, comes from an alcoholic family has struggled to get himself into grad school and has tried to put his past behind him. Not drugs in this era, it was then booze primarily. And uh, I wanted to put myself in his shoes and see how that might have been. It seems like this would be a good time for you to read from the book. Oh, I'd love to. Okay. It's my favorite thing to do. Let's do it. So I will uh, just introduce this a bit. I'll just read you a short section in which Fitzhugh Loney, the hero, who's a Harvard student, and his wife, Joni, are invited for a Saturday night session at Professor Leary's house. Now, Fitz, to this point, has resisted these sessions, but Leary has leaned on him rather heavily. If you want to be part of my coterie, you're going to have to be turned on to this drug. So here's just a little bit, which will describe the first trip that Fitz takes. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
for the podcast, we'll have some walk-up music here. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have TC to pick it. Make it the blues. <laughs> Officially, this was a session. One of an ongoing series in the study professors Leary and Alpert were conducting to assess the potential of the drug for clinical use. But it was apparent that it was more than that, too. All you had to do was glance around the room at the way people held themselves to see that. This was a ritual, a ceremony, and Tim was at the center of it, going around dispensing pills into upturned palms while the conversation died and the sub-zero vibe of the MJQ replaced Coltrane on the stereo. Tim came to him and Joni last, lingering a moment to reassure them that he'd be there to guide them throughout the entire trip, as everybody was calling the experience now, as if it was a journey to some distant place, which, if you believe Tim, it was. Just as he'd be there to guide everyone else so there'd be no worries and no hang-ups. Just let it go, he said, handing him and Joni each a glass of water and slipping a brown prescription bottle out of the inside pocket of his jacket. The bottle had a black screw-off cap, no different from any other prescription container, except for the Sandoz label affixed to the front of it. Could, could I see that? He heard himself say, and Tim, grinning, handed it to him. Indocybin, it read, and beneath it, psilocybin. Two milligrams, 500 tablets. Then the Sandoz emblem, a triangle with a single S emblazoned in the center of it, and beneath that, Research material, caution, new drug limited by federal law to investigational use only, followed by the usual warning, federal law prohibits dispensing without prescription. Well, Tim said, looking first to Joni, then him, satisfied? He wasn't, not really. It certainly looked official, the bottle, the description, the warnings, but who was prescribing it, Tim? Tim wasn't a medical doctor. Walter Pankey, another of Tim's grad advisees, was, but Walter was conspicuously absent on this particular evening. And whether his presence was needed or not, at least it would have been comforting. Fitz nodded, then found himself grinning back. Why am I thinking of Superman? Tim laughed. Everybody says that. It's the big S, the triangle, the whole works. And I'm not promising you you're going to be able to see through walls or mold diamonds in your fist or fly around the world at supersonic speeds. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's fits. But you never know. You just might. Turning to Joni, Tim said, ladies first. And she held out her hand while he shook the bottle over it and counted out not 15, but 10 pills. Beginner's dose, he said with a wink, then turned to him. Dutifully, Fitz presented his cupped palm, felt the fleeting tap of the bottle's rim at the base of his thumb, heard Tim counting aloud, two, four, six, eight, ten, while the MJQ tinkled through the chord changes of lonely woman and conversation started up around him again as if after a long withheld breath. Tim's face glowed in the light of the table face. I'm sorry, of the... Tim's face glowed in the light of the table lamp, an Irish face, quintessentially Irish, right down to the cool, hooded eyes and the faint twist of the nose. He turned 41 back in October, but looked 10 years younger, no older than Fitz himself. And he was fit and handsome, his hair trimmed in the universal crew cut and hardly a trace of gray in it. He favored tweeds, like the suit he had on now, and he even managed to make the hearing aid he wore look stylish its cord descending into the same inner pocket from which he'd extracted the pill bottle. All right, he asked. All right, Fitz heard himself say. And then he was throwing back the pills two at a time and washing them down with measured sips from the glass, all the while telling himself there was nothing to worry about. 
It was research, that was all, only research. It's, it's like going to the doctor, Joni said, meaning it as a joke, a bit of levity to break the spell of the moment. But then she saw that Tim wasn't laughing and her face went sober. Still, she was right. It was like going to the doctor. The only difference being that they weren't sick. And Fitz hoped he wouldn't be. His biggest worry at this point, besides losing his mind, that is, being that he would embarrass himself in front of everybody. The fact was that these little pink pills that looked so innocuous they might have been Pepto-Bismol tablets were a laboratory synthesis of the mushrooms the Indians call flesh of the gods, Teonanakatol. And they were said to produce intense visions, synesthesia, out-of-body experiences, along with nausea, and in extreme cases, paranoid delusions, and even convulsions. A word of advice, Tim said, don't fight it. And don't think nothing's happening, or you've got a placebo, or anything like that, because there's no control group tonight. We're just having an experience, okay? To initiate you, both of you. And the drug takes a while to come on, maybe 40 minutes, an hour. Just relax and enjoy. You are about to have the single most significant revelation of your entire lives. Joni looked pale, as if she'd been drained of blood. She was nervous, though she tried to hide it. And he was nervous, too. Joni just nodded, and a flicker of a smile jumped and died on her lips. Trust me, Tim said. Really. For the longest while, nothing happened. There was a small uptick of excitement after the pills had gone round, but then everybody settled into anticipatory mode, and the party subsided till it wasn't a party at all, just small groups of people quietly conversing in the corners. The darker the corner, the better. Light was oppressive all of a sudden, and Tim, in his wisdom, had gone round shutting off all the lamps and replacing them strategically with candles. At some point, the jazz gave way to one of Bach's masses, and he and Joni, following suit with what the others were doing, settled down on the floor in a spill of pillows, Tim and his daughter, Susie, wasn't it, scattered round the room. He watched Tim's daughter go from group to group, arranging things as if for a pajama party. And he wondered about that, about the propriety of an adolescent, a child, witnessing whatever was about to happen here. But then once she was sure everyone was settled, she said goodnight in a soft, fluting voice and drifted up the stairs to bed. Time elongated. Nobody was standing anymore. The pitcher of martinis on the counter went untouched as if everybody had had their fill of that particular form of stimulus. And when he glanced up at it, he kept glancing up at it. He couldn't help himself. It seemed to glow like a crystal ball, as if the flame of the candle Tim had set beside it were in the liquid itself now, in the gin, transfusing it with light. You see that? He murmured, sitting there beside his wife in their dark, dark corner and reaching out a finger to point to it, where it was whirling now. Not on the counter, or of the counter, but in the space above it, gin fire, whirling. What, she said, and turned her face to him, her eyes gone huge as goggles. Gin fire, the martinis. Box voices braided themselves, separated, braided again. She laughed. I'm not thirsty. Don't know, he said, that's not what I mean. I mean, look at the picture, don't you see it? I see it, she said. You see what it's doing? Yeah, she said. Oh, yeah, her voice soft and distracted, barely there at all. And the puppet, she said. Do you see the puppet? He didn't see the puppet. Not that he didn't want to, but now, all at once, every ordinary object in the room came alive, just as if it had a heart inside it, pumping blood. High boy, bookcase, Persian rug, rocker, armchair, the nautical scene hanging over the mantelpiece. Everything stirring, buzzing, fracturing the room with light. And he said, I think it's coming on. And she said, yeah, 
Thanks. And that is exactly why I have never done LSD, because I am so afraid that I will get trapped and not be able to control. It was what you said. Control is important to me. Like, I don't like not being able to talk. I don't even like getting stoned, really, because I can't talk, right? Oh, loosen up, man. I've got some right here for you. But... <laughs> cocaine, is, cocaine is fine. I like, you know, booze is fine. But some, for some reason, giving yourself up to a trip like that where exactly. you can't I talk think, is really I think hard. that's why the heavy drugs, the heroin and... And, and LSD that we did uh, mindlessly when we were kids uh, kind of gave way to cocaine. The, the cocaine 80s, we thought we could handle that, you know. You, but before long, you're doing a, a line for everything, you know, <laughs> to, 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 to put the wash in the washing machine. Wherever you go, you have to do a line. And uh, uh, people found that uh, that has its addictive properties, too. Um, again, what saved me, it sounds corny, but it's the absolute truth, is I grew up enough to discover what I wanted. I was 25 when I went to Iowa City to the Writer's Workshop and, and got my PhD. And by then, I'd done all this. I'd been there and done that, and I just wanted this one thing in my life that is all my life, and that is to write, to delve in my imagination and write. You know, we're living in an absolutely meaningless world as, as dressed-up animals, uh, what is what is it about, you know? Uh, uh, and so I write books in order to try to control that and find out. So, for instance, my interest here in LSD, is it, as I said earlier, is it an entheogen? Does it allow you to see God? And if so, is God simply a miswiring of the brain? It's clearly, God's an invention of us. But is there a reason for it, you know? So again, I'm always exploring such things. I, it, you know that I write a lot about the environment and animals and us as animals. Uh, I, it just fascinates me endlessly. So what is the most vivid sensory experience you've ever had? And is it actually under the influence of LSD or is it something else? I um, did have some negative visions, as I pointed out earlier. But in the beginning, it's all a lot of fun. And, you know, things waver and you see colors and you kind of dream in the way that you dream while awake sometimes. All that was good. And by the way, you know, what were we taking? I, it wasn't like, like Michael Pollan today, you know, with a, with a shrink there and they put you in a room and they ease you. No, we were just kids buying street drugs. We don't know what it is. Um, and, uh, wow. So I had some, some negative experiences. But uh, wow, the world is, you know, the world is pretty bright as it is. Uh, I've discovered that uh, on its own. Um, it's funny that you mentioned falling into a drug scene in Iowa City. I, I went to Iowa City, um, I guess. I'm trying to imagine you falling into a drug scene in Iowa City. Me. Scene. I'm having a hard time. <laughs> I, I didn't say upstairs that I at, Upstairs at Gabe and Walker's while the band was playing, right? There you go. <laughs> I, can't, I can't comment, but um, <laughs> while I was in Iowa City, that was the time in which they started making you turn over your driver's license to buy Sudafed because there were a ton of meth labs. Oh. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I ran into some of that at the yeah, Foxhead. People were, people were cooking things in spoons. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, it's interesting that you, I mean, you did all of these, you tried all of these things and then you, you, um, you went there and you, and you wanted to seize control in some way. And 
found that the actual world was very bright. And then all of the trips in here, it's just so interesting to read all of the different trips. And I think about, you know, I teach, I teach at the University of Minnesota, and sometimes, you know, you get a young student come in and they want to write, um, you know, a story about drugs, can't imagine why, and uh, writing these altered states, it's like a particular challenge, right, to take the reader with you. So yes, how yes. do you do that? And it's part of the fun of doing this. So nothing is planned. I have never written any outlines or anything else. It just happens day by day in this trance, this state you get into. So writing a drug scene is like writing a sex scene or a violent scene. The beauty of literature is the reader supplies the images. You give the reader a guide, and each person sees it in a different way. So I think um, less is more in terms of this. You just heard a part of one of the... Uh, one of the trips in the book. Uh, there are maybe three other trips, but they're all described in this way. It's very descriptive. It allows you to get in and then flash on whatever you can see for yourself. So the novel's not just about LSD. It's also the story of Joni and Fitzhugh Loney's... Am I saying that? Their last name yes. is Loney? Mm-hmm. I was just yes, guessing because I read it. Mm-hmm. Loney's marriage. And the way that marriage is changed by their relationship with... Timothy Leary and the experiences they have while taking LSD, right? Do you think that the experiences, the cha- changes they go through are caused by LSD or were they headed in this direction anyway and it just sort of accelerated something that was going to happen for them? A little of both, I think. You know, this is so interesting to me because it predicts everything of the hippies a few years later. You know, communal living, for instance. Leary, after he was kicked out of Harvard, uh, went to Millbrook, New York, where one of his devotees, who just happened to be a billionaire, gave him a place, a big, huge mansion, uh, to live in with all of his coterie and parties from people coming up from the city. Maynard Ferguson, the jazz guy, lived there with them. Uh, it was just a big extended family, communal living, kids, dogs, a monkey even. Uh, all of this stuff that seemed second nature to us, that is, you know, having such parties, uh, living communally, which I'm sure most of us have done. I'm not talking necessarily about the dormitory, but that's kind of life. So it was just great for me to go back and trace where my later experience had come from. These are the origins of this whole idea of hippiedom. Right. Starting with Leary, because this was pretty early, right? We're talking early 60s, right? Yes. He would be, and then he would yes. later become famous, uh, more famous like, as time went on. Yeah, and I should say, by the way, that... Didn't Nixon call him the most dangerous man in America or something like that? Indeed, yes. Yeah. So another thing is that as hippies, we knew everything. We were immortal. We knew every possible thing there was to know about the whole history of the world. And we had done all our drugs uh, properly and so on. And Leary, at this point, was this bleary old brain-dead guy in a robe chanting on TV who was completely irrelevant to us. He was laughable to us. But now it was wonderful. You just heard the description of him. Yeah, he was one of the hottest, most brilliant young psychologists in the country. And was he sidetracked by this? Yes. I think, like Fitzhugh Loney, he had an addictive personality to begin with, coming from, you know, generations of Irish drunks. and he didn't understand that although these drugs are not physically addictive, certainly they're mentally addictive. And um, to say he went off the deep end <laughs> is, uh, is to minimize what happened to him. So 
Leary said um, there's nothing, quote, there's nothing miraculous or mysterious about LSD. In any situation where we now use our symbolic mind, the microscope of LSD will help us see more, see faster, and see deeper. Do you agree? And, and were there good sides to Leary? It's interesting to hear your characterization of him because I think about, I don't know if any of you saw Wild Wild Country on Netflix, um, or just you know thinking about Charles Manson, or just kind of leaders of groups where people who have followers, and so many of them invoke faith, and the angle by which you approach faith and through by which Leary approaches faith is, is very different. Yeah, I should say, by the way, I'm a good guru. I don't want you to do anything except uh, enjoy <laughs> literature and be happy in life. But I am <laughs> kind cult. of obsessed with this kind of guru figure. Yeah. I've written about this kind of figure several times, like uh, in The Road to Wellville. Yeah, I was Dr. That John point. Harvey Kellogg. Why do we eat cornflakes? Why do we need six animals a day? Well, because of John Harvey <laughs> Kellogg. Uh, or or uh, in the inner circle, uh, Alfred C. Kinsey, the man who invented sex. Why do we have sex? Well, it's because of Alfred C. Kinsey. Uh, and Frank Lloyd Wright, and the women are about Frank Lloyd Wright. All of these figures, and Leary is another, are gurus of some sort. Yeah, and they collect. sort of charlatans, yes. but not always, not exactly charlatans. Not exactly charlatans. I mean, they believe in what they're doing totally. But for instance, Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, the whole world, everybody in it was just there, they were just there to function in his scheme of things and work for him for free as apprentices, et cetera, or, or be millionaires and pay for him to build his houses. Uh, the same is true of all of these people. Uh, uh, my question, though, is what do you give up if you become the follower of something, whether it's a religion or uh, a cult or whatever it is? Well, you give up your independence and independent thinking. On the other hand, you have the comfort of being part of something and, and knowing something. So another question that driving the book, and we've touched on this a little bit, we'll get at it directly, is, is the nature of divinity as it relates to psychedelics. You know, So much of American literature has tried to deal with the supremacy of religion in American life. Many of our iconic literary figures have some religious background or wrote in some way about religion. Baldwin, Mark Twain, Flannery O'Connor. You know, when you started this project, and so Leary and Fitzhugh talk about God a lot. And, Leary keeps saying to Fitzhugh, you're gonna, this is a way of seeing God in a way. Or, um, you know, when you started this project, did you know that it would revolve around this question of God or did that sort of emerge as you were in the tr state of improvising the, the book? Everything emerges as the book is improvised. Yeah. However, uh, from the beginning, I was interested in whether it's true or not, whether you can shut down the editing mind and see something else. Now, I do it myself now by going in nature, and of course, by being deeply involved in my art every day where my mind is in some other universe. But then afterwards, uh, I spend a lot of time in the Sierra Nevada. I rent a place up there, and uh, I do my work, and then I go out into the woods. And I don't go out into the woods for hours, by the way. I don't go out in the woods uh, thinking about the fact that uh, the bark beetles have, uh, during our drought, have destroyed everything and the world is over and we'll all be dead soon. I don't think that necessarily. That's, I what, go we out, do. That's what we do on the podcast, is just talk <laughs> right, about that. Right, right, right. So I go out there with a sense of wonder, like a child, and see, uh, see the world in its sparkling beauty, uh, which we, we ignore all the time because we're so busy and we're so involved with our our machines and our, our, our phones and everything else. So this is a really important part of life to me. I even, even in winter sometimes, I'll just take a nap out in the woods, you know? It's just 
it's, it's, to be an animal in nature is a kind of God experience. And I don't need organized religion, and I don't need drugs, aside from some rum once in a while. Here's the best day I had uh, around the year 2000 or something. I was writing whatever book I was writing then. I'd rented the place on the mountain. The kids were little. My wife had to take them back to school. Now it's like two days after New Year's. I'm up there by myself in this cabin. We had a three-day blizzard. And this is high altitude, 7,200 feet. I mean a three-day blizzard. Now, I know every tree up there. I've been going there for so many years. I know every squirrel by name and the birds and everything else. No problem. So the best day I had that year, it was the third day of the blizzard. I got a little housebound. So I took what was left of a bottle of rum and a book and the dog and went out into a whiteout blizzard and found a little sheltered place at the base of a pine deep in the woods, read the book, drank the rum, came home and built a fire. <laughs> Doesn't get much better than that. I've, yes, well, we can applaud <laughs> drinking rum. I feel like, and I don't know if this is true for you, but I do feel like when I'm writing that those hours are not counted against my life or they don't feel that they're part of regular time so that when I'm done with a book and I wake up coming out of it and people are older and I'm like, oh, you're, fine. you're older than you were the last time I was not writing a book, right? And for some reason, the life of a book is that when I'm really working on it is a time that is separate from the normal way that I perceive time. I don't know if that happens for it's, it's magical and this is why our art is the best <laughs> because it enables one-on-one -on -one participation of every reader creating all this in his or her own mind. And it is a way, as all art is, to get out of your body. And we seem to need uh, to get out of our minds. We need to do this because reality is oppressive in a way that we can't really name or think about. That's why we need to get high and need to get drunk and need to absorb art in beautiful ways and get outside of ourselves. There's something about our consciousness that is oppressive. Um, and don't forget, you know, we think of evolution as progressing to us, but in fact, evolution is absolutely random. And yes, our big brains and erect posture allowed us to dominate the animals and create stuff like this and in, 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 in effect, destroy the world, which is what we're doing. Uh, but it also, Maybe it's a backwater. Maybe it allowed us to get dominance over the other animals. But now it feeds on itself. Do we need this much mind? Would it be better if we had less brain and could live in nature again as when we were children? I don't know. But we sure need to get away from our brains once in a while. And I think in reading... I mean, Whitney, you're talking about writing as a kind of trip, I suppose, and I, th I think I would think of reading the same way because I actually, I have synesthesia, which is a strange thing that I didn't realize was true until I was about 23 and was describing my experience of reading to someone who was like, you have synesthesia. Um, it was the thriller writer Matt Quirk, actually. Um, and I had never heard the term before and then kind of went and looked it up and realized that that was true. So I see colors when I read. Um, you never told me this. Well, this is what the podcast is for. We talk in about all these people. It's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> but I think, you know, the way that when I read Fitz and Joni, for example, going on that trip together, there's also something about reading where you're with other people and you're also not, right? You know, she sees the puppet, he sees the gin fire, but they're both reading the world in the same moment, in the same experience. And 
there's also a way in which the book approaches, I mean, it approaches LSD in this very sensory um, way, but also you, you talk about the clinical origins of the book. And you know, there's the measurements, the scientists, the micrograms, the dosing, um, you know, the the distillation of um, you know, iteration 25, et cetera, et cetera. And today we have all sorts of ethics boards, uh, human subject regulation, et cetera, and processes that researchers are supposed to go through before they conduct clinical trials, let alone on themselves. Um, which some of these some of these characters do, and so a lot of the controversy surrounding Tim Leary had to do with the way he manipulated his students and colleagues, which is this important part of the book, right? The 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 experience you're describing, what everyone wants, this experience of the sublime, like whether it's going into nature, letting go of um, their their control. The power of that is a way in which the characters manipulate each other, and I wonder if there's anything that shocked you in your research uh, on the experiments that Tim Leary did. Well, the fact that he required his students to take a drug. Uh, but let's not forget sex. Leary said that uh, LSD was a, a tremendous aphrodisiac. I experienced this once of the several trips I had. And so I ran with that, of course, as a way of, uh, <laughs> of um, getting the reader into the book and into the heads of these characters. So on page 95 of the book, you list some of the famous writers and intellectuals and musicians who were part of these experiments that Sugi's talking about. Um, Allen Ginsberg, Aldous Huxley, Robert Lowell, Charles Olson, Maynard Ferguson, who you already mentioned, Charlie Mingus. It's quite a list, you know, so what was it, what do you think attracted so many smart and creative people into Leary's orbit? Was it the drug? Was it the man? Was it the time period? Were they looking for something in particular? Uh, you forgot to list Dwight Eisenhower and Dick Nixon in that, that list. <laughs> I think it's the time period and the drug emerged at that time. Yeah. Um, again, having written Drop City about the full efflorescence of the hippie experience, I wanted to go back and see where it came from. And it was fun for me to, to look up the old jazz tunes and all of that. There's a lot of really good music in the book. I like that. I've never written anything without music playing in the background. I have to have music. It gives me a beat. I love to read aloud, as I did to you, because I like to hear how it sounds out loud. It's, it's very important to me. In fact, uh, when I'm working on a longer piece, I read to my wife every day after I'm done. And not so she can say, oh, man, you've got to change that, or, gee, it's really good. Uh, it's just that when I'm doing it out loud in a performance mode, I can hear it. It's music to me, and that's very important. It also, in my case, um, enables me to jump ahead and make discoveries about what it is I'm doing and where it might be going. I don't know why that happens, but when I'm reading it aloud to her, I make those discoveries that I might make while you know, looking on, at the screen, but it's something different when it's musical and out loud. So what kind of music do you listen to while you're writing? What's the, what's the Spotify playlist? Well, I'm a rock and roller for sure, but only when I'm not working. So when I'm working, it's got to be jazz or classical. And uh, if it's classical, uh, I love vocal music, but it's got to be in a language that I do not readily understand because uh, you can't have words coming in to interfere. That's why you can't write while listening to rock and roll. The words will interfere. So we're going to do a Q&A so people can think about that and get in line. We have one last question while people are getting ready to do that. I think we get to go to about 12.50 here. Um, we wanted to know, where would you rank LSD on the list of literary-friendly drugs? I mean, dr you know, drugs appear in literature all the way back to Coleridge, you know, or before, right? Writing Kublai Khan while he was stoned. 
Um, is it, I assume it's behind alcohol, but maybe like ahead of cocaine? You mean in terms of frequency of use over or the years? Or frequency of appearance in, in literature, like how often people like to write well, about it. Well, I don't know if I can address that exactly. I, isn't William Burroughs on the schedule today? <laughs> You're going to have to ask him, I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, sir. Historical fiction, which is something that I really enjoy, and I always wonder uh, where the research ends and the imagination begins. And with that respect, I sort of have two questions. One, you've done a number of things like this in the past, wrote to Melville, Wellville, and, and the women. Uh, has the way you approached real life events in your book, has it changed when you do historical fiction? Have, has it evolved? And the second thing is, this happened recently enough. It's 50 years ago, so it's that interesting time where some of the folks are still alive. So, as the Moody Blues would say, Timothy Leary is dead, but Richard Alpert's alive. Right. So, did you speak to him? Did he get back to you? This got it. And then the final thing, as I read this book, which I'm really enjoying, this would make a hell of a movie. you have any nibbles on a book mm. option? Wow. So, I don't have anything to do with movies. I love movies, but, you know, I just want to do my own art. And, uh, yes, these are the various things. There's 10 or 12 of them being made at this very moment. But, and, you know, when they, if they hit the screen, I'll take full credit for them. But until then, I don't know. Uh, uh, your first question remind me about the history. Do I change the history? So, How, how do you deal with, with doing historical fiction? Has that changed for you? I love the history itself. Now, of course, there are no rules in fiction. I could write a, my book about Frank Lloyd Wright and have him run over by a train when he's 10 years old. I can do that. I can have him transported to uh, Trelfalmador if I want. But I love the fiction. Uh, I love the, uh, the, the, the real history so much that I want to fictionalize it because the real history doesn't give you point of view. And I want to put myself or you into a character's brain to get the point of view. What must it have been like? And so. I, uh, and further to your question, I think of um, Ed Doctorow, who I love, who only wrote historical novels. I was on stage with him once, and someone asked this question, and he said, well, many writers fall into the trap of loving the research so much, they forget the object of the research. And the object of the research is to create a work of art and not be an historian. So at some point, you have to realize you're not going to know everything. And you also don't know what direction you're going to go in. So at some point, the note-taking and the research stops, and a voice begins to click, and you follow it. Yes? Um, when you're working, what jazz do you listen to, and how has that evolved? And a second, unrelated to that, uh, reflections on creativity, what it does for you, how much of it can be taught, mainly the jazz. Oh, okay. So. I'm listening primarily to the jazz of my youth. You know, um, John Coltrane is my hero. The first art I ever understood what art was and why it's great was not from school, although they tried to tell us. Uh, it was from listening to John Coltrane, and it just illuminates me to this day. So jazz of that era, but also some contemporary jazz as well. Uh, creativity is something that we are all born with. Uh, if we're very lucky, we get to discover what the outlet is, you know. Uh, and I, I'm lucky because I got to go to a liberal arts school. I went to SUNY Potsdam, the music school, uh, playing my saxophone. I could stand on my head and play anything. I could play a sight read. I was a complete lunatic with it. But 
I didn't really understand the kind of music they meant us to play or its feeling. Uh, and so I flunked my audition. Meanwhile, here I am in a liberal arts college. I'd always loved history, as you can see. So I said, okay, I'll be a history major. Second year, we had a, a course in American short story, and I discovered Flannery O'Connor, also an Iowa grad. That's right. And it blew me away. Here, uh, a good man is hard to find, specifically. Here is a familiar scenario, hilarious, uh, from sitcom. You know, the family going on a, on a trip. And it turns black, absolutely black. I was blown away by this. So I said, okay, I'm a double major, history and English. Third year, I blundered into a creative writing classroom, and here I am. So uh, yes, we all have creative abilities, but can we find them? Yes. Hi. Um, I experimented with LSD um, on my own uh, back in the day, and I was one of those people, I, was take, I would just take it, and I look back at it now like, why, why did I do that? You know, I had some good trips and some bad trips. I really enjoyed the book, um, and to the first gentleman's point, yes, uh, this was a fairly recent thing, and you might have been able to interview some people that actually lived in the mansion and went mm -hmm. through this, and I found it very interesting, the whole thing with Fritz and Joni and how at some point he just lost interest in his, he was supposed to be writing all this time and doing all this and then he got so involved in the, the situation around him that he just lost his total, total focus. Okay, so yeah. I love what you're saying and the answer to your first question is why did you do it? Because you were immortal then, <laughs> <Right>. that's why. <laughs> uh, and, and, and further to your question. Oh, uh, yeah. If, if you know of any people that... Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I meant to address this earlier. Uh, I've never had a journalistic background. I'm not comfortable with going and interviewing people. I would rather uh, absorb material myself. I will often go to a place, like I went to Millbrook, for instance, uh, and see a place. But I don't really want to interview people because it might color what I'm doing in a way that uh, I want to be absolutely free form. So, no, I mean, uh, yeah, so Adler's alive still. I have no interest in talking to him or anybody else, and I'm sure he has no interest in talking to me. Uh, I'm creating a scenario out of my own mind of, in, of historical information that interests me. That's it. Just one last thing. Do you still live in a Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright house? I do. I live in his first California house, which is why I wrote The Women in order to find out about him. Um, when I left uh, two days ago, it was still standing. It's from 1909. Uh, but, uh, you know, poor Frau Boyle is there alone, so it might just be sawdust when I get back. Yes? Oh, so my question kind of follows on to and what And we're the, right, I'm just going to say, we're right at time, so I think this is going to be our last question, okay? Okay. Um, so I really enjoyed the book, and I got very much wrapped into the whole story about Fitz, and so it's, this is kind of an authoring question, because it sounds like you don't necessarily plot like the whole thing out when you start. Um, as a reader, I mean, I just was so frustrated towards the end, because I just wanted to, like, smack him over and over, like, snap out of it! And, and that, you know, I didn't really get that... Um, that release that I was looking for from a resolution standpoint, you know, after the climax, and I'm just wondering from an authoring standpoint, do you think about that kind of thing? And, and, and why did you choose to like not let the reader feel 
really great about how things ended. Yes, okay. Well, uh, you know, uh, I think I was cut out of a few books in the, uh, in the introduction. Uh, this is my 28th book. And included in that is like 150 short stories. So I have to find endings to stories. Each one is different. In this one, I felt that kind of slap in the face at the end would do it for you because it brings you back into the, into the book. Uh, the Tortilla Curtain, for instance, uh, which all the students read and so on, and they ask me about the ending. It ends with a gesture, as this one does. Well, what does that mean? Uh, the author is uh, forbidden from telling you what it means because then it's meaningless because you have your own ideas. Uh, it end, the tortilla curtain ends on a gesture. And if you reread that page once, twice, maybe, it brings you back in so that you are now reviewing all the themes of the book. And I hope that the ending of this one is a kind of slap in the face and it, it, it brings you back to do that. And I think you also can project into the future what's to become of Fitz and Joni's relationship. I think you already know. Thank you very much, T.C. Boyle. Thank you. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. We want to thank the Miami Book Fair for inviting us down to Florida and for running a world-class book fair that we absolutely love. If you haven't been to the Miami Book Fair, put it on your list. Thanks to our producer interns this semester, Gilbert Randolph and Chloe Syme, who are MFA students at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. If you value discussions like this one, take a few seconds to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. Happy reading from Miami.